Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today, our guest, straight from Norway, Eric Engheim. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Um, good to be uh, on the show, uh, Sean, <laughs> or the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for coming on. Um, but before we get started in the main topic today, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, kind of what you do, how you got into development, and uh, what kind of things you're working on now? I got into development when I was a teenager um, on an Amiga, basically. Uh, and I think it's I think a lot of people can relate to this is uh, they play computer games and and maybe they play some computer games where you can be a bit more creative and build your own things. And then it kind of just spins on from there with like, oh, well, if you can if you can program, you can uh, really get going creating something, you know, your own um, vision. So I, I think that this combination of being interested in science in general and um, just games and I want to get into game programming and that stayed with me for a long time. Uh, but, um, but I actually was going to study, I, I ended up doing, because I was very interested in, you know, a little bit of a typical geek, you know, interested in the science fiction and, um, you know, space exploration, all these things. I had a period of very interested in artificial intelligence back when that wasn't going anywhere, right? Today, it's a very different world. Um, but I I wanted to get into building robots. So I kind of started in the sort of robotics um, line in my undergrad and did neural networks and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> never really ended up doing anything with it. So it's very annoying to see what's happening now. It's so big because I couldn't find any really job with that. Um, you know, <clears throat> that's around the 2000s. So about 25 uh, years ago or so. Um, yeah, that brings back, uh, you know, some fond memories there talking about Amiga. And I remember playing, you know, the original Lemmings game, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Over and over and over again. Yeah, doing that. And then talking about robots, it remained me. Did you remember the Heath Kit robot? No. It was kind of a kit. Yeah, I mean, this is also a little bit of context also is useful as Growing up in Norway, is, in particular when I did, you know, in the 80s, is very challenging for someone who's kind of a, a tech geek. Um, I grew up in a kind of small town, blue collar kind of industrial town. Uh, where my memories of kind of growing up is, is, is a bit like just all the factories that were closing down one year after the other. Um, so it didn't really have all that many people that had straight interest and you couldn't really get material. So just getting hold of <clears throat> learning material was a challenge. So I had a very strange um, path in how I learned things. Um, I was lucky in that, and I think I miss that about computers today, um, is that the Amiga 1000 that I got, it came with a programming manual. Now I bought it used, so I'm not sure if that's normal, but I had the impression that computers back then were much more geared towards programming and then they, they came with manuals and so on, but they weren't really very user friendly. I mean, they were kind of like lookup things. So I had to try to learn Amiga Basic by um, <laughs> kind of something that felt more like an encyclopedia. Um, and my English wasn't very good either. Um, so that was certainly challenging. Um, I, I think I learned a lot of programming from actually just reading computer magazines. Um, that's an area that we're kind of uh, blessed, I think, in Norway is that because it's a small country, um, there's a kind of a strong um, sort of magazine culture, and, and I'm not sure what to call it, but we have this chain of stores that's kind of all over the country that would import um, newspapers and magazines from uh, different countries. So, you know, I always had from when I was a kid, I had access to German or French or American and so on magazine store and I could I could walk from my house about 20 minutes or so down to the magazine store and I, I'd look at all these magazines and all so I, I followed a lot of these kind of um, things in magazines to learn how to program um, and then it'd be like occasionally you know I'd be on a trip abroad and I might locate some uh, bookstore but I actually learned one of the first things I learned was actually 6502 assembly code and the the only reason for that was it was an old, outdated 6502 um, 
programming book on my local library, right? All the stuff they had was kind of outdated, right? Because you weren't, people weren't, you know, this is more of the Amiga days, right? So people weren't really doing 65.2 programming. <clears throat> but I was actually uh, learning and writing 65.2 codes, uh, but just on a piece of paper. Uh, I didn't have anything to run it on. <laughs> yeah, the Amiga used, what, the 68,000, if I remember right? Yeah. Yeah, and I had problems finding documentation for that. So I, I did do a little bit of, um, I did get into 68, 68K um, assembly code, but it was kind of a reference um, instruction set manual. It didn't really tell things that you have to know in assembly code, such as, you know, what are the important memory addresses and so on, so that you can interact with APIs or graphics memory. So it was... Um, I so wanted to get into the demo scene. You know, you said the the Mega guys were doing all these cool graphics tricks by um, by writing, you know, some very clever assembly code, and I wanted to do that, but I had no idea how to do that. I actually worked with later with people that did that, but yeah, they were luckier than me. They just got hold of the right uh, literature, and um, I, I just didn't know how to do it. Yeah, the boing uh, ball. And all sorts of things like that. Yeah. Did you ever take your case apart? Yeah, unfortunately, um, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have the uh, the case with the signatures inside and the yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah? And it was like built like a tank. I remember it was so much like kind of steel and stuff in there, and 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 millions of screws. It was a lot, quite a lot of effort to get in there. It was late when I had it because we had started having problems with the um, not not the hard drive, the floppy drive, disk drive. Uh, it had already started where we put a stick in there when we were reading from it. We had to push a stick in and hold it while <laughs> reading because it was really not working very well. Eventually, it just kind of died, and th then I was started opening it. But you know, I shouldn't have done that. Um, <laughs> then it was a beyond repair afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, you so you stayed with uh, tech and development and things like that since then. What kind of things did you have you worked on for most of your career? Yeah, so I and I've mainly been an application developer, desktop application developer, and maybe that's why I have a sort of bit of an old school perspective on tech development. I was never really got into the web side of things that much. Um, I did start in Accenture. Um, and I would have probably been this typical web Java guy if I'd stay there. But this was just the dot-com bubble. So I got hired right before the bubble burst. Like um, I was about half year away from finishing my undergrad. And they were just hiring like crazy. So they had the biggest hire, I think, in any, at any time. I think this is the biggest hire in Norway that Accenture had done. And uh, we were something like 100 people uh, in the Oslo office hired at the same time. We're all kind of similar age and so on. It was really fun. It was like being in a class, you know, with like-minded people. And we we're doing all this training together and so on. But we, what we didn't realize when we started was we were already obsolete the first day that we um, put our foot in the office uh, because the economy has just tanked. Um, so eventually, they had to get rid of most, most of us. Um, and that's how I ended up in um, the oil industry. That's really been my career the longest, which is uh, kind of the tech side of the oil in Norwegian oil industry. Um, so 3D modeling of the uh, the subsurface. Um, and I really love that because I had a passion for science and you know natural science and physics and so on. And I got to work with um, geologists and physicists and a lot of these different people and you know while it wasn't a computer game it was so cool like we worked with 3d and stuff so you know i was um i was very satisfied um with that um and i had a sort of uh in between when after i worked with that i was i went abroad to do a master's degree i was in the united states and the netherlands um, and then I came back and I, I continued another kind of similar kind of uh, oil service uh, company. Um, so I'd done a lot of C++ programming. Uh, they had some scripting and stuff like in Python. Didn't do that much with that. Um, and I was quite early passionate about user interface design and um, software architecture. So I was an, a software architect for a while. 
on that software. And I also was actually head of the user experience. Um, they didn't have any one really taking care of that. And I was, I, I used to start on my own initiative doing all these um, uh, tests because the software was, you know, overly complicated. So yeah, I've been, uh, and then later I, I got into mobile phone stuff, been making iOS applications, Android applications and stuff like that. Um, because I thought I'd been, had I was so many years in the oil industry, I thought, and I was working with tech that stretched back to the early 1990s. I think the application I worked on, it started in 1991 or something around the time with the first Jurassic Park and, um, you know, that OpenGL first got out. Uh, the software had a history back on IRIX and Silicon Graphics machines. And so I was really in this sort of little bubble world of, um, um, you know, old school tech. And I thought, I, I can't stay here too long or I'll never be able to do anything else. Um, and I had been doing Objective-C programming because I'm a big Mac fan for a long time. And then iOS, uh, you know, really hit it. And I was like, oh, wow, they're, they're using a technology, an obscure technology that I already happen to know, uh, Objective-C, that I thought never would be beneficial for anything. Uh, so, you know, it's a chance of sort of doing something that I had some passion about. Um, so I worked in different companies doing that, uh, making iOS applications. And the uh, now the last couple of years, I've been much more into content creation, um, making videos or writing. And um, the last the last stuff I've been into is um, a programming language very few have heard about. It's called Julia. Um, so I'm coming out with a book actually about Julia called Julia's the Second Language. That's, I think it's just a couple of weeks away now. Um, but I made a video course on Julia programming before. I was one of the early ones that did that. Um, it's kind of, it's something that's probably going to be relevant in the future because, um, it's very well designed for machine learning, big data and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, the very hot thing these days. Um, and something like Python, which is the 800 pound gorilla is, um, isn't really that well designed for it, to be honest. Um, right. It just kind of accidentally fell into that space. But I think something like Julia is, you know, that's actually made for really high performance, um, the kind of stuff you would need for this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, we'll see. But uh, that, that's been a kind of also a, a, a passion for a while. I did that probably started like nine or 10 years ago. Also, I didn't really think that would ever become anything. But even, even if it's small, it's, it's, it's still grown a lot. So, you know, it's enough that I've been able to have, um, you know, Julia training and, and write material and create content and so on for that. So, yeah, I, I think okay. that's roughly what I've been <laughs> up to the last 20, 25 years or so, I guess. Yeah. All right. So nice. So uh, our main topic for day, today, we're talking about monolithic software. You know, and kind of how, you know, it's kind of taken over a lot of things that have started out, I think, not having that in mind and then have kind of grown into that kind of a structure and things like that. So why don't you first kind of define what monolithic software would mean? Yeah, so I'm not really, I mean, I'm not like this kind of typical architecture guy in this. So, but um, I see it's just, at different levels, right? I mean, it could be monolithic kind of uh, from the perspective of development. You know, are you are you building, you know, large pieces of executables? You know, you can think sort of, you know, microkernel versus monolithic kernel, that kind of um, stuff. Um, but I also see it I mean, I also think a lot about from the user perspective because I've done a lot of user interface stuff. And I think that there's, you can also talk about monolithic software and non-monolithic software from a user perspective. You know, are you, 
when you're using the software, are you using multiple smaller, well-defined pieces of software that uh, can interoperate well? Or are you using this like huge um, integrated system, like a, a big um, software that could in principle be quite modular internally, right? I mean, it could be made in all sorts of plugins, but when you actually are presented as a user is quite monolithic. So I think that you can be kind of monolithic in a bit different ways. And I, I'm ideally would want to see um, things being partitioned at both the development level and kind of at the user level. And I think that also would help both users um, and developers. And of course, this exists in, in many spaces. I mean, the the, the hottest uh, and most talked about is pr probably right with microservices. I don't really uh, know microservices that well because I'm a desktop developer primarily, but I see certainly seen it from a desktop development perspective because I worked on a very large desktop software. And I have a passion for the Unix philosophy, you know, with the small tools that you combine. Um, and I I just seen it with software I used over many years, um, such as Xcode for development, that that's gone from being split into many pieces of software that you kind of could work well with together uh, until being a much more integrated whole. And then there's certainly there are be benefits to integration. Um, but I think that there's... I think that people are very tempted to do, you know, they want to gain one thing and then they forget all the, the things they lose, right? It's not like, it's not like everything's going to be better if you're all, all just distributed or split into small components. I think there are downsides to it and just, it's just the trade-off you have to make, right? Um, and I think we're, we're, we're going too much towards the, uh, the, the monolithic trade-off and thinking that's always the better choice. Yeah. Yeah, I think of monolithic of kind of my front end development. I think of, you know, building a spa. You know, everyone everyone wanted a a single page application that pretty much had everything that the application was ever going to do and all the different modules in one spa that you build and compile together. And then people quickly learned that that becomes really unmanageable, and so they started calling things mini spas. So one section of the application would be its own spa and another section would be in its own spa and things like that, trying to, to really recognizing that building everything together, that things that are unrelated probably shouldn't be built into the same package and distributed that way. Because yeah. there's things that people aren't using all the time and why load that? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that if you read about um, usability and try to sort of understand a lot. And I think maybe more tech people should do that. Um, right. We know that humans have an easier time understanding things when there's not too many things to see at the same time. A, a common trick in user interface design is to hide the information or the functionality that isn't relevant right now. Right. So it's a lot of good user interface design is about tucking away things. Um, and so that, you know, you're for the the context or the kind of work you're doing right now, you only see the tools that are relevant to that. And as you're changing what you're doing, you click on a particular button or, or change the task, then more new things become available or visible that's related to that task. And um, I think you can you can extend that into uh, what you're talking about, right? That um, if uh, if you have um, the functionality of several applications put into one then you create too many things in at the same, there's too much context, right? There's, um, I noticed that for instance with Xcode. So Xcode used to be a kind of uh, managing your project and doing source code editing. And then there was a separate um, uh, tool for user interface design and you, know, you basically do the version control separate. And so, uh, if I want to do some user interface stuff, right, I'll just, I just click on the user interface application and now everything I see in the menu, all the buttons I see, they're all user interface design related. And that's the only thing I have to relate to. But now in modern Xcode, it's sharing and competing in the menu bar and everything else with functionality that has nothing to do with, um, say, user interface design, even though, you know, I might be currently mentally just focused on user interface design. I don't care about all the other stuff. But I, it's still there, and I still have to um, 
relate to it. So, yeah, I guess that's a bit bit of that similar kind of thing that you're talking about. Yeah, it's almost like people forgot about, you know, separation of concerns in their development and their organization of their of their applications and their code. And and I, I don't think everybody really means to do it that way. I think, you know, it, the initial scope is defined that, OK, the scope isn't that big. We'll just put it all in this in this one application. But then as the years go on and they decide to add more and more and more to it, um, then they they just add to that existing thing rather than saying, OK, is this really tightly, tightly closely related to what we had before or should this be a separate module? And then, you know, maybe have the, the interfaces, like you said, change depending on which module you're in. Or are they just going to integrate everything in together and make it one big, you know, monolith? Yeah, and I think that's I've seen when uh, some of the big software I work with is, um, <clears throat> I remember there were things that was actually separate, and I thought, well, that's cool, and then they uh, they integrated it. And one of the reasons I remember the, the motivation for that was they found it so tricky to debug. Right, you're um, something goes wrong in, in one sort of separate thing and you're stepping through it, but now it stops because there is a communication boundary to a separate application. And so uh, now they're like, oh, well, what if it's just all in one? You can just step all the way through uh, the code to you know, the, the very bottom. And I think my argument against that would be that really what people are missing is they need to have good tools for uh, monitoring and understanding the, the the communications, right? I just think about if you write a sort of web application with the REST um, API now, you have such great tools that you can monitor the communications uh, between the service and the application, right? I noticed that when I was doing mobile phone development and I that was a new world for me, I was, um, using this Charles, uh, was it Charles reverse proxy, whatever application, and you can then listen in on the communication between your mobile application and your, your web service. And you could do things like record that communication, replay it. And I thought, hey, that gives lots of cool new opportunities in terms of debugging and understanding the application. And this kind of communication is quite invisible if you're just dealing with a monolithic uh, software. So, I think the problem was the stuff I worked with before was it was kind of a custom protocol, which meant didn't have this sort of rich plethora of tools to monitor that communication. And maybe that's what you need to think about when you're you think that your distributed system with multiple components doesn't work well because you can't just step through. Well, maybe you need to just take some time and write good uh, diagnostic tools for you know monitoring the communication. Um, and I think I'm a very big fan of that in general, right? The tools for helping development. I find that very often we just, um, we don't consider that uh, writing tools for your, your, your process and your development process should also be a natural part of application development. Um, I've seen, I've been inspired a lot by that. Looking at the game developers, they seem to make lots of tools for, um, uh, their development process. I'm a bit surprised that the kind of more traditional application development that I've been in doesn't seem to have a habit of doing that. Um, but yeah, that's my. Do you find that do you find that uh, web web applications tend to be less monolithic than desktop or mobile or what's your thoughts on that? I don't know. I'm not really very well experienced with um, web applications. I mean, I guess that one benefit of web, right, is you get that natural separation uh, with the service in the back, right? The, I guess that with the mobile stuff, it seems to kind of get a good separation because of the stack that you're using to create a mobile application and the stack that you're using, the tech stack you're using to uh, create the web service are naturally very separate. So you, you create a 
clear separation between the business logic and your visualization. I'm not sure exactly how it would be when you're now with modern web and stuff, because I guess that now with JavaScript, they might be using it on both ends. So there's much more mixing. And I guess, you know, in a lot of ways that's seen as a positive, but also means uh, maybe you don't get quite the sort of same clear separation. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very torn on what I, I think about. The, it seems like there's, there's a big problem with monolithic software in the web too, even though we have that separation. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think that's, yeah, it's a different levels because on one end of the tech stack, right? Because you have the separation between the user interface, the, the web part and the, the service behind, that gives you some modularization. But if you, some of the stuff that I wrote about, right, and splitting applications is about on your desktop, having multiple smaller applications that are communicating with each other to sort of create a sort of bigger virtual application, if you will, and where you can you can work together with multiple applications. And in a, in a rich desktop environment, that's possible because they typically have good facilities for applications interacting with each other. Uh, with the web, you kill that entirely, right? Uh, web applications aren't really made very well to, they're a little sandbox, right? They don't, they're not really made to communicate with each other on the desktop. So if you want to create a whole little ecosystem of web applications that you're running and that you want them to work uh, sort of together, I, I don't think that's going to work so well. So you kind of gain modularization at one level and you kind of lose it at another, I guess. I, I guess that's a lot of what, what I wrote about that I'm complaining about. Um, that's a bit of a, uh, you know, I feel like a bit of an old school grumpy desktop developer who's um, complaining about all this newfangled web stuff. Um, I just need to get on with the program. But yeah, I, I do definitely miss this kind of, um, the more small applications, specialized applications with pretty simple interfaces that um, you can use together with each other. You know, I drag and drop something and, and, and I can select an item maybe in one application, drag and drop it to another and it does something with it there. Um, yeah, there's different ways like that. It seems like it doesn't really work so well with web stuff. Um, it really, I feel it really pushes you in a kind of monolithic direction. Um, I When I do development, I like to kind of have my own separate, you know, Git client. Uh, I ideally have my separate user interface design application, um, you know, my own editor, maybe even like a, a separate application for sort of project management or something. Um, I have waited for that for a long time to have like a file manager that just generally just works really great so that I could actually use for project management, but I haven't really seen that yet. Um, yeah, so yeah. My, my thoughts are that, you know, web applications nowadays are just a different form of end-tier development, you know, and each tier can still be its own monolith if you build it that way. So yeah. you can get each tier, it can be, you know, much too big and much too tightly coupled and, and just, you know, mixed functionality if if you let it get that way, you know. And But I also have to think there's got to be some benefits to building things as a monolith. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, it's kind of convenient to do it. And I, I guess there's also a drive there uh, from a business perspective, right? Uh, whether you're a Facebook or Google and whatever, uh, you like that 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 sweet lock-in, and um, uh, you know you're building this very strong ecosystem that people can plug in their things. And so there's certainly a modularization at some level because if you didn't, you couldn't have other people plug in their stuff there. But it's very exclusive, right? Because if you make some plug-in or something for the Facebook platform. You're not going to be able to put it in on some Azure or, or Google, uh, I don't know, App Engine or something, something else, right? It, you are kind of locked into different platforms, and so we're really just back at the old complaint, like, oh, well, this Windows app doesn't run on my Mac, and it's so bad with platform-specific 
tools. Well, we're right back at that now, just at the web. Now that the platforms aren't called Windows and Linux and, and Mac, now they're just called Facebook and, and, and Google and, and Microsoft, uh, Azure or, you know, whatever have you. Um, and so it's just sort of rinse, repeat and the same thing. And I guess we just, when we'll just keep getting back at it because there's the same business rationale driving it. Um, you want to kind of lock people into your platform. There's more profit in that. Um, I've seen that with, I think I mentioned that in my article about when I started doing app development, I had this super naive idea that uh, we would make this generic banking application because I was doing some banking stuff first. And I thought um, I could then use this banking application for any of my banks, right? I'll have this standardized uh, you know, banking protocol or whatever. And I didn't realize, oh wait, it's not how it works. Um, every bank is making, it's reinventing the wheel, making the same banking application, but with, you know, their logos and their particular idiosyncrasies. And so it was weird, you know, sitting there and kind of building the same application over and over again. Um, like seemed like a, a waste. Um, yeah, I, I can't help it sort of like, I get a little bit political about this stuff. You know, I'm not just writing about tech, but I'm I'm also kind of writing about, um, you know, I'm interested in society and, and, and politics and so on. And then there's something that sort of, I get thinking that, you know, sometimes maybe government should have um, been a bit more active in some areas to set standards and so on. Because um, I just noticed with, <clears throat> I thought a lot about this when I was in the 2000s, when I was in the United States, um, and I remember how crazy it was with the cell phones there, because um, there was CDMA, there was GSM. I think there was something like four different standards at that time. There was some analog. There was some analog in addition to the digital. I don't even remember all the stuff that was then. And then each vendor had his own kind of lock-in and their own uh, cell phone towers. So I was going to look at how do I find a cell phone that covers the areas I'm going to be in and um, that also happens to be in the company that sells the kind of cell phone that I want and one that actually also would work when I go home to Norway. And that felt like this like impossible puzzle to solve. Um, and then I remember thinking, you know, like how complex a mess that was compared to what we had in Europe where they had standardized on GSM, right? So that was all over the continent and you just had different companies Everyone can make different phones and services, right? But they're all applying to the same protocol, GSM, right? It's the same whether, you know, you're talking about email, uh, SMTP, or POP3 or whatever, or um, all these different protocols, right, that dominated the internet before, where you have um, different companies can provide the end service or run the server or, or create the clients. And so you as a consumer get a lot more choice. As long as you get this, standard open protocol. And I think that, um, I guess the old internet was more idealistic, but you can see that you can, this can also be influenced by more sort of political decisions, right? Right. That, um, like you saw in Europe where, uh, there was a more deliberate attempt to establish one standard that everybody would stick to. Um, I know. I sometimes I can't help. <laughs> yeah, no, us, us in the U.S., you know, we 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 like to make <laughs> things complicated, you know, can't be simple and straightforward. No, no, no. Yeah, well, I guess that I mean, there's there's advantages, of course, in that you can you can experiment with a lot of different things. Uh, but I guess it's like there's in, in the U.S. There's a very strong skepticism towards having government involved in anything. And so um, that, of course, I guess sort of creates some barriers to kind of having that role for government to set some kind of standards because people are not going to trust the government for, uh, you know, they're, they're going to think they come up with a bad standard. So <laughs> better they don't come up with a standard. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, we kind of we kind of say, you know, let the market choose, not the government and things like that. But, you know, it's not always the most efficient. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like trade offs, right? Um, it's uh, now it's it's a hard choice, all right? And then um, wouldn't be sort of categorized. This is a problem I had in tech also often is that I really kind of felt strongly that we should go in this and that direction, 
but I never really know for sure. And it's that I think, I'm not sure if you have thought about that, but I keep thinking about that. Nobody ever got fired for choosing IBM. And I'm a lot like that often where I really believe in something entirely different from what we're doing, but it's different enough that I don't want to stick my head out and end up being wrong. So I'm just going to go with the safe choice, you know, basically let's just buy IBM because they're never going to blame me for doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, back in the eighties, you know, we had VHS versus Betamax and then we had uh, HD DVD versus Blu-ray. So yeah. Lots of things like that. Go yeah. on. Don't you think that it's like in the industry, this industry it's the same kind of stuff just keeps coming back again and again and again in a, in a kind of different, slightly altered version. But it's still kind of if you if you squint, it's kind of the same thing. You've seen this before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always wonder, you know, why are there so many different programming languages or for front end development? Why are there so many different, you know, frameworks to build applications, you know? they are all really kind of getting to the the same end goal to have something that users can use. But, you know, unless it's really specialized for a specific environment, you know, do we really need all these? Yeah. I mean, I'm a lover of programming languages. So I'm always like, ah, oh, the more the merrier. But um, I guess that it would have been nice if these different languages uh, were interoperating better and that was i remember when dotnet came out it felt like oh this is a dream now you can just choose whatever your favorite language is and it doesn't matter it didn't quite work out that i guess uh um you still had <clears throat> c sharp completely dominating and it wasn't what i had expected i, I think i had been sort of naive thought that everybody would just use their favorite little language because now that choice didn't matter. But of course, people have to still read source code and, and cooperate with that and there has to be training and so on. So, um, yeah, it, it doesn't really solve, it didn't give sort of programming nirvana that I thought it would give. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm thinking another downside to, to monolithic applications is that tech debt issue. You know, when you look back and you look at, okay, what's it going to take to, you know, modernize this application and bring it up into, you know, say you're using the older .NET framework, the full framework. Well, a lot of things you can't bring that up into the newer versions of .NET. Like, so I have applications using .NET Web Forms. Well, I can't bring that up into .NET Core or .NET 5, 6, or 7 because it doesn't it's not compatible. So now I have all this tech debt there. And because it was pretty much a monolithic application, the, the amount of work it's going to take to actually update it, it's like I can't do it very easily piece by piece. Yeah, that's that, all or nothing. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. I I don't think I mentioned that in uh, in anything of the the articles I wrote, but that is that is definitely uh, one of my sort of pets PVs. Like that, that's I've been fretting a lot about that particular point because I work, as I said, I worked on a really old software from the 1990s, and I thought, you know, we really need to modernize this stuff. Um, and yeah, how do you modernize a three million line um, uh, C++? Um, application where that's all all tangled up. Um, if it had been modularized from the start with regular communication interfaces, whether those had been, um, I don't know, kind of Unix pipes or socket communication or <clears throat> something like that, uh, then you could have rewritten individual little pieces, right? I, uh, if it was a small manageable application, I could have rewritten to Rust or Go or whatever modern new language or technology, and the rest could have just stayed in C++. And, and the, you, don't, you don't have that choice right now with uh, a big monolithic software. Then you would have to do a major refactoring, which is going to be hard to factor out uh, pieces and then maybe you could rewrite those pieces. Um, 
but yeah, it, it really gets you stuck on an old technology stack for sure. And that that's that's really been on my mind a lot. I, I thought about that all the time when I was working in the software. Like if only we had been modularized, we could have changed some of these pieces. Um, and you, uh, yeah, you you could do so many things then, right? You can you can even write in some kind of script language. I mean, this the, the anything is is, is uh, possible. The other thing, and I noticed this in a company I worked with later, um, which I did very sort of modularized software development, and I thought it was really neat to see how that played out, um, because applications are much smaller. Uh, you could. Each individual piece is much more well-defined. You know, these are the inputs, these are the outputs. They could then load that up in a test harness and they could run, um, if you know, Valgrind, um, you know, for native developers, it's a big thing, right? It's a kind of a simulator um, for code and it can catch kind of illegal memory access and all these different things. Uh, but uh, it works really bad for very large applications, right? Because you're running a simulator um, and the, the, you get two big performance problems. But so I would rarely use it when I was working on this huge um, monolithic software because it was so slow and painful to use. But when I was in this new company where they were building much more modularized software, uh, each little module was very easy to load up and test. And so, you know, the ability to, to do proper testing and, and really used a very a much richer variety of testing tools suddenly become much more uh, you know easier to achieve um, so yeah if you go modular there's there's just so many advantages um, you know bringing you making your software modern using different testing tools uh, yeah so much so many benefits so uh, what's the solution is is microservices the solution I think to me, microservices just is kind of the, the hot technology of today. And, you know, in a few years, there's going to be something else that people say, no, microservices wasn't that great. Yeah, isn't the problem with um, the silver bullet thinking? Um, <clears throat> I I remember, so I was kind of in the early part in, the, with the, in this oil business with... Um, with all this scrum and lean thinking. And I remember reading about that and as we were kind of introducing it, thinking, ah, oh, this is such a great idea. So, and I really believe in iterative development. Um, but my feeling is that, and I think this is what happens with microservices as well, probably. Uh, it's certainly seen that with pretty much any technology trend, <laughs> um, is that what starts out being just advice and good rules of thumb and philosophies, they turn into something akin to scripture. You know, now now they're not suggestions, they're commandments. So uh, they're iron rules carved in stone. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, I don't know, doing scrum and you decide, um, well, it would be more practical for us to do uh, runs in, I don't know, three weeks or four weeks. And somebody comes in and says like, no, that's that's against the, the scrum rule. Like it has to be two weeks. That's the perfect and the most optimal and, and what the, the, the prophet says. And um, so many things get, the, the whole philosophy that behind things, you know, it is lost. It becomes more important to follow very particular rules than to actually um, do something sensible. And I, I don't know web uh, microservices well enough, but just kind of following from the from the sideline and looking at in the, the the discussion and sometimes reading articles, I get the impression that there's a little bit of that element there where things have gone wrong, maybe to some degree because people instead of trying to approach it in a pragmatic sense, uh, they 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 turn it into scripture, a holy scripture, where you know there's these things you have to do. Um, I've seen that with um, a stark example of that is I remember reading that there was this, uh, um, I'm not sure if you remember the, the code smells, but I don't remember the author, I'm very bad with names. But there was a thing about different code smells, right? And one of the examples was uh, 
code comments. And I think that in this original writing, it made sense, right? If there's a lot of comments uh, about some code, uh, that suggests that probably uh, you you should you should look into maybe you know you didn't write this code very cleanly or nicely if you need to uh, write so many comments. Um, but it seems like people have misunderstood this and thinking that comments onto themselves are bad um, when it's really about the code, right? It's not the comments that's bad. It's just the fact that you needed to write comments might suggest that your code isn't so great. And so I had experience with, um, I quite liked to sort of document and write, uh, you know, my code because I feel that code says something about how something is done and works. It doesn't say why it's like that. And I think that's where uh, comments are useful. And I remember someone taking over some code that I written and he deliberately removed all the comments because he was like, that's a code smell. Comments is a code smell. You got to remove it. It's like, do you know what a code smell was supposed to mean? It's not, it doesn't mean <laughs> they're bad. It's just the mean, it's just for you to stop and think. And I don't know. I feel like that's the, that kind of thing just happens too much. Um, people just missing the point. They can't become sort of very focused on um, following some rule. I don't know. Maybe there's a reason uh, authoritarianism is sort of often <laughs> keeps having appeal to people at all ages. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm with you there. I I really think you know comments should be the why, not the what. Uh, yeah. The code is the what. You know, if you write self-documenting code, that's the what. And because you know, quite often a comment that explains what can be wrong compared to what the code is actually doing. So, but I, if if I have to put something in code that seems a little off, then I'll put a comment in there of why I, I had to put it that way. Yeah, and I've seen that, uh, I'm not sure without, but when you're, when you're taking over projects, it's very frustrating and you see all these very strange technical choices and you're wondering, well, why were, why were those choices made? Um, and um, you don't know, right? Because uh, people don't write comments or, or you know, yeah, it's become this sort of, oh no, you're not supposed to do that because it's a code smell. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I don't know why, why did, you know, I remember I have a, a project that I took over and they were doing a multi-threaded um, verification of whether a text field contained um, an email address. And I kept debugging those crazy race conditions and I kept debugging and I, you know, midway and then spending hours on this stuff. And I just stopped and thought, you know, what, why, why do we need to be on this complex, large multi-threaded thing to just check if this is a valid email? Like how hard is that? And I, I just threw out the whole library and just, wrote a regular expression and um, I was done in a fraction of the time that it, I had already spent debugging all the race conditions. Um, so, you know, I just realized, yeah, sometimes people just do weird stuff. I see that there's um, there's a propensity now in modern software development, I think, and here I feel like I'm the old school guy, is new guys are like, oh, I have a problem, I got to find a library for that. So instead of thinking, uh, you know, what are the fundamental issues you're trying to solve? People are just like, oh, I'll just download a 20 megabyte library that does uh, a dozen things. And one of those dozen things is the one little thing I happen to need to know, which is my, I don't know, email verification or something. So I would see that in um, iOS applications, right? They are, they're single, uh, single user that that simplifies things a lot. And yet people are thinking as if they're building a, a big uh, multi-user web application. So you would you would have, I remember I had a case where it was just reading and writing about two kilobytes of data. Um, and they had made a um, an object graph database to read that, uh, that can um, load just partial parts of the object graph into memory so that, you know, it can deal with very large amounts of memory. And um, 
the glue code for all of that was more than when I just threw all that out and replaced it with uh, just some simple uh, standard uh, file reading and writing code, you know, just read a regular file. Um, so you're also like, why do they put this? I, in the beginning also, I thought, you know, there's a reason they put this um, big um, object graph database thing in there. Eventually just realized like, no, there was no reason. There. It's, just, it's just how software development works today. People just grab the biggest, coolest piece of software to solve whatever tiny little problem they have. Uh, now you got a, a maintenance nightmare afterwards because that tiny little, that was that was, what was supposed to be a tiny little iOS application is now his huge thing with 20 dependencies uh, to, to all sorts of large projects. So um, yeah, th that's a little bit of a, my grumpy uh, <laughs> uh, ranting there. <laughs> yeah, not a problem. So I guess we'll move on to picks then. And uh, my pick this week is going to be the latest season of The Mandalorian. So, oh. yeah, that's been out. I think we've got uh, three episodes of The Mandalorian out now. You know, some people are saying it's not as good as the first couple seasons, things like that. But um, I think it's building. I think it'll get better as the season goes along. Um, my wife tends to really like the show. She likes, you know, Grogu. So we'd like to see him be a little more involved. He hasn't done a whole lot uh, so far this season, but uh, if you didn't know that the uh, the latest season was out, uh, definitely check out uh, season three of The Mandalorian. Oh, I've been thinking about, I haven't watched any of this stuff. I've been thinking about uh, watching Andor, actually. Um, uh, just because I, uh, yeah, it looked like a kind of different kind of Star Wars, uh, something that uh, uh, would appeal to me. Um, yeah, I'm, I haven't actually, I, I watched a lot of, uh, TV shows, but, uh, now lately, uh, we're going to do my, uh, pick. Um, I've been just completely lost in AI art. Um, I've, I've been very fascinated by, um, how that works. I, I was, I got into trying like chat GPT and stuff like that at first, cause I do writing and I thought this is going to either going to make me obsolete or it's going to accelerate my workflow. And I felt like it didn't really do any of those things. Um, I do think that the, the code pilot is, is very kind of has high potential. But, and, and, you know, ChatGPT is very, is, is very cool and impressive and so on. I just don't think it's really helping me for that thing. But Well, there's a new I, version that just came out this week. So yeah, ChatGPT 4. Yeah, I got to try that out. Um, have you tried that yet? No, I watched a couple of videos. A uh, guy on YouTube was just uh, used it to throw together some code, and it was vastly improved from what version three was. Oh man! So we so we, we basically uh, just told, you know asked it to write code to do such and such, such and such, and you know for the most part it did uh, the best practice way of of building these things. So. It was uh, Nick Chapsis. I watch his YouTube channels and things like that for doing .NET development in C Sharp. So he did one on the latest version of ChatGPT. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah. I guess uh, one of my, I'm not sure what you're thinking about is, but I feel uh, the AI stuff is impressive, but they're kind of like a new tool and you need to master this tool like any other tool. Um, there's a particular way of, using it. So I noticed that with AI art, for instance, that um, I got into this about two or three weeks ago, and I've been doing a lot of it. And I noticed that, you know, I, I'm way better at it now than I was then. Um, but it's, it's definitely a skill to develop, right? You need to understand how to, how to communicate with the tool and how So there's a there's a way in like the limitations that exist for AI. And I think this AI art is very similar to ChatGPT, I think, in the sense that they both can create stunningly impressive stuff that you think like regular people typically can. And so you kind of easily kind of think they're more impressive than they are. And then you see like, oh, they just totally screw up this kind of pretty simple thing for a human. Um, they, they kind of screw up in a little bit sort of this unexpected odd ways that you might not have thought about like AI art, for instance, um, 
it's really bad at making hands. <laughs> it just makes horror hands. That that's just kind of this weird thing that everybody quickly starts to know. But there's other. So is there things. is there a generator AI art generator that you're you're liking now? Yeah, so I'm using stable diffusion because that's um, that's what uh, you know. It's open source, and there's a lot, there's a whole ecosystem. It's almost like Linux in a way, you know. Like people build all sorts of stuff around it. Um, people take um, right. They they have to be trained right with a model that contains all the weights uh, for the neural network. And people can take the standard uh, stable diffusion uh, model, and then they can um, train that further on on more images to specialize and on particular types of image creation. So you know you might want to make armor, and so you just train it on a bunch of armor, and 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 now you can create all sorts of cool looking armor. So I I got into this originally because I was interested in um, making game assets. Um, and you can you can input like a variety of kind of like say you um, have different units in a game or something or maybe tiles in a landscape you can input you can train a model on 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 that and then you can specify you know I want some new units this or that way and it's going to make it in some kind of a style um, recognizable because you're using a specialized model so. Yeah, it, it helps having this kind of ecosystem. People make ads and make all sorts of ads on to it. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned a uh, hard time doing hands. I've been trying to use some AI um, upscaling for videos to, you know, redo some old videotapes and things like that that I have. And it does not do a great job at faces. Ah, uh, yeah. There are is like special like we yeah you have problems with that typically but there's typically people use um, face uh, special face fix up software so they they developed um, there's been software earlier before AIR that was developed to just clean up uh, faces and so people would often just do that they'll they'll get a sort of decent image and then they'll run the face fix up afterwards on that well i think maybe there's integrated but yeah i, I guess it's probably that's how it's going to go eventually with a lot of these things you have a specialized tools for each thing so you can be okay do the hand fix up here do the face fix up there um you know stuff like that maybe chat can have something similar but and i don't know is that chat is that closed source or can anybody um uh, fork it mm, i'm not positive yeah yeah so yeah, I, I imagine that probably works better with static images, things like that, versus video. Yeah, I'm trying to do so. That sounds very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially if there's you know multiple faces w within the same video. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if our uh, listeners have questions or they want to reach out and get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? To reach out to me, uh, well, I'm a lot on Twitter, so that's the kind of uh, I know there's people contacting me there. Um, okay, what's your Twitter on, handle? Um, it should be, uh, uh, I think, what's Eric Eric Ingheim, <laughs> my whole name. You don't tweet your. Sorry, I don't really think about what my Twitter handle is. Just, uh, yeah, it's 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 my whole name. So that's. Uh, Eric Engheim, and it's Eric with a K. Uh, I, I know for uh, you know Americans, it's. I think I consistently when I write emails with people, um, I always get sort of like "Hi, Eric" with a C. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a K. It's the, the Norwegian way. Um, yeah, Engheim probably uh, harder to screw up because you wouldn't know how to write it anyway without you seeing it. Um, so yeah, Eric with a K E N G H. Uh, E-I-M. That's my Twitter handle. Okay. Uh, Great. Yeah. All right. And if our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with me, uh, they have feedback for the show, have something that, you, that we'd like to cover, um, they can reach me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Uh-huh. Yeah. So thanks, Eric. It was nice a great discussion too, about uh, software and, and being fuddy-duddies and old stuff and yeah. bring back good memories there. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's cool. All right. And we'll catch everybody else on the next episode of adventuresin.net. <laughs>